This is just you are not for peace. You are for war. You're listening to the news on RTHK. For the last two to five years. Public financial services is known to be very tough. And traders trading all sorts of things. Volatility in the foreign exchange market. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotrahora. Mario Draghi urges a historic ECB step with a 1.1 trillion euro QE plan. Stocks uh, in the U.S. advance, oil rallies, European equities rise and treasuries fall, all on speculation that the European Central Bank will boost stimulus through asset purchases. American Express to cut 4,000 jobs this year and eBay will cut 7% of its workforce on weak revenue. Today on Money for Nothing, Hannah Luchnikava of uh, IHS Global will join us on the line from New York to talk about India's monetary policy. The Nat Bullard of Bloomberg uh, will talk to us about Tesla's uh, slowing sales in China. And Christina Dean, the founder of Redress, tells us about her campaign to bolster ecological awareness among fashion designers. Peter Lewis is guest host this morning. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Renita. So, Peter, here is my opening question for the day. Do you remember this? In our mandate, within our mandate, the ECB is ready to do whatever it takes. 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 To preserve the euro. And believe me, it will be enough. 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 So that was what, two years ago? Is today judgment day for Draghi? Yes, it very much is Judgment Day for Draghi because ever since then it's been a question of will he, won't he? Will he go and release his monetary bazooka and try and launch a a European version of quantitative easing which will involve um, buying uh, European government bonds to hopefully try and flood the market with euros, stimulate demand, get consumers to spend more, drive up inflation, drive up growth. And, And the problem that we have in Europe at the moment is growth is very sluggish. In fact, a number of countries are in recession. Um, the eurozone is flirting with uh, deflation again. Um, so the market is expecting him to do something. Um, and I think he will. The question is, when it comes to stimulus, size is everything. So everyone's going to be focusing on that big number. How much? How much size is everything? Indeed, it has been the, the topic of conversation all week and certainly in the last 24 to 48 hours. Wall Street finished higher for the third straight session, shrugging off global growth worries in expectation that the European Central Bank will announce aggressive stimulus measures in just a few hours from now. The Dow gained uh, 39 points to finish at 17,554. The S&P 500 added nine points to finish at 2,032, while the Nasdaq Composite gained 12 points to 4,667. The euro has firmed against the dollar and currently stands at 1.16 euro to a U.S. dollar. So let's take a step back and see where we are now, you know, how all of this came together. Here's what Professor Nuriel Rubini of NYU's Stern School of Business says. 
For six years after the crisis, we've tried uh, zero policy rates, we've done quantitative easing, we've done credit easing, we've done forward guidance, we've even done negative uh, deposit rates and interest rates in nominal terms, we've done unlimited, unsterilized forex intervention, and now, last week, the 10-year treasury yields in Switzerland, 10-year maturity were negative. Which kind of world is that? Now, the gold bugs were saying that this is going to lead to a collapse of the dollar, hyperinflation, the gold is down, the dollar is up and we have a problem with lack of inflation, of deflation, because in spite of this monetary stimulus, in my view, it was not enough of a fiscal stimulus. Right. Therefore, output is still below trend. So will Mr. Draghi make bold moves today? Uh, Master Draghi wants to be bold. He has to convince a majority of the council to surprise on the upside. The trouble is to have a larger program in terms of sovereign bond purchases. The hawks are going to say, let's have less resharing and have more of the National Central Bank buying those bonds. And if he accepts less resharing, they've tried to do everything possible in order to try to avoid deflation. The problem is that we need not just the right monetary policy and have supported unconventional monetary policy, but QE worked in the United States because he had backloaded fiscal consolidation while they've been front-loaded in the case of the Eurozone and structural reform have to occur in Japan and Eurozone, even the United States. So you have to have a combination of policy and they've not done the right thing. The expectation is that the ECB could unleash 50 billion euros a month into the system starting in March and lasting through the end of 2016, at least. So what effect will that have? Here is David Rubenstein, who is the founder of Carlyle. Of course, when central banks act, they're most effective when they do it by surprise a bit, because when you catch the market by surprise, you have probably a bigger bigger impact initially. But um, they really haven't telegraphed exactly what they're going to do, so I suspect the market is a little bit surprised. I think it's probably about the size that market would think would be appropriate, probably proportionate to what the United States uh, Federal Reserve did. So I think it will have probably the same desired effect. Um, it obviously is interesting that the United States is thinking about increasing interest rates in the middle of the year, and Europe is really um, doing the opposite. But will it have the same effect? After all, the Eurozone is more complicated, more difficult to manage than a single country, not to mention the fact that it is in a much worse condition macroeconomically than the U.S. was when it started its QE program. Well, when the, when the Federal Reserve started, we were probably in a worse situation than Europe is today, honestly. Um, the, remember, the program in the United States went on for several years. Remember, we were in a free fall. We were losing enormous number of jobs. The United States was in a recession. Europe is not technically in a recession right now. So, yeah, I think we were in a worse shape uh, than Europe is today. Now, so, there's different concerns. The biggest concern in Europe right now is deflation and, and high unemployment, particularly youth unemployment. And there has been so, some slow growth in some of the southern European countries. But Europe is not um, falling apart or anything like that. So, uh, Peter, <laughs> do you agree? I mean, do you agree that the U.S. was in a worse condition when it unleashed QE? Well, it was certainly at the height of the financial crisis. I mean, we saw the economy contract quite considerably, but there's a big difference between what the US was doing and what Europe is doing. First of all, the US had to stabilize its financial system. There was a real financial crisis going on. There were banks that were going under, major financial institutions that were in difficulty. So the Fed had to act um, to provide liquidity to the system. Secondly, what the world needs and wanted is dollars. Um, there is a global shortage of dollars um, right now. 
the Euro- the ECB can do nothing about that. It can't print dollars. All it can do is print euros. Which so is- that's a good point. I mean, given that it's uh, going to flush euros into the system, is that going to help? No, because people don't want euros. They The world wants dollars. And in fact, even printing euros to buy all these bonds, there aren't even enough bonds in the eurozone to buy. If we have something like 500 billion euros of quantitative easing, what it means is that the Bundesbank will have to buy about two-thirds of all the debt issuance by Germany. So it's buying up a huge amount of bonds that are in existence and it's causing huge distortions in the market. I mean, if you look at Switzerland... Every single bond now under 14 years in maturity has gone negative. In Japan, you know, we have negative rates. In Germany, we have negative rates. It's causing huge distortions into the market. And when the market comes and reasserts itself, as we saw in Switzerland um, a week or so ago, uh, the results can be quite catastrophic. So with this shot in the arm that everybody is waiting for, what can actually happen in your opinion? I mean, it doesn't sound good. Well, the markets could end up disappointed here. I mean, the market, we're in the situation once again where the, the market moves and all the big market moves are totally dependent upon one of the world's central banks. And here we are once again sitting here waiting to see what the ECB will do. Um, the market is now so hyped up by this move that there is a real chance that it could be disappointed. It needs to see at least 500 billion euros now. Um, but the devil is in the detail on these things. I mean, there's a number of ways in which the ECB could implement that. But one of the ways is it could abandon the idea of risk sharing. In other words, rather than the ECB actually buying the bonds, it gets all the national central banks to buy their own bonds, which then moves away from this federalist idea that we're trying to be supposed to be moving towards in Europe, where everyone shares risk and everyone's in it together. So what that what will that do for countries like Greece, for example, which are on the periphery um, sort of here? If the ECB, for example, chooses not to include Greek bonds in that, what will that do for the Greek bond market? So there are a number of issues that need to be looked at quite closely when the ECB makes its announcement. Many, many things to consider. And uh, with the markets being disappointed, I mean, you make the markets sound like a high-maintenance girlfriend. Well, 90% (laughs) of the market moves now are not based on fundamentals. They're based upon what the Bank of Japan or the Fed or the ECB or the SMB will do next. And uh, one thing that you said earlier, um, you said size is everything. I mean, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, the markets, I think, are are very simplistic. And these days, markets are dominated by algos. These are computer programs that are designed to automatically trade the markets. And what they do is they scan extremely quickly in a matter of milliseconds for certain words or certain headlines. And we saw that in the Fed meeting uh, last month where everyone was looking for, you know, this phrase considerable time. The algos can scan that in a millisecond and find it. Today, they will be looking at what is that top line number? What is the total size of the package that the ECB is going to announce? And the markets will probably make an initial reaction based on that headline number. All right. Well, in other news, online retail giant eBay has announced that it will slash uh, 2,400 jobs. That's 7% of its workforce in the current quarter as it restructures and prepares to spin off its PayPal finance unit. American Express says that it plans to also cut its workforce by 4,000 jobs to reduce costs. And Premier Lee has told the World Economic Forum in Davos that uh, his country's economy is not set for a sharp slowdown, despite uh, recording its lowest growth figures in more than 20 years. He insisted that the economy wasn't losing momentum, but he did warn that it would continue to feel a downward pressure this year.
Let's take a look at the numbers. The Nikkei is up 19 points to 17,300. Australia's ASX index is up 31 points at six-tenth of a percent to 5,399. Currently, uh, one U.S. dollar is trading at 117 yen and one pound sterling will buy you $11.73. The management of private property is the responsibility of the owners. The Building Management Ordinance provides a legal framework for owners to form owners' corporations to jointly manage the common parts of their property. The government is conducting a consultation to review the ordinance. Copies of the consultation paper are available at public inquiry service centers of district offices or the Home Affairs Department Building Management website. Please submit your views by February 2nd, 2015. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. That's what I want. I have no more campaigns to run. My only agenda... I know because I won both of them. Yeah, that's uh, President Obama's uh, funny outtake from his State of the Union speech yesterday. Well, the time is now 8.15 a.m. and India appears to be shifting towards monetary easing. The Reserve Bank of India cut its key policy repo rate by 25 basis points to 7.75%. That was in mid-January, ending a 20-month-long tight policy stance. Let's bring in Hannah Luchnikava, who is an economist with IHS Global. For more. Good morning, Hannah. Good morning, Renita. And uh, thank you for joining us uh, during your evening from New York City. <laughs> My pleasure. So, can you take us through why the Reserve Bank of India has actually cut uh, its uh, repo rate? Absolutely. Well, the pressure on the Reserve Bank of India and uh, its governor, Raghuram Rajan, has been there for a long time. As you already mentioned, uh, the RBI haven't really adjusted the policy rates downwards in the past 20 months. Uh, the repo rate actually was raised by 75 basis points in 2013 when the RBI was trying to battle uh, the rupee crisis. And it also remained at 8%, uh, which is pretty high over the course of uh, 2014. Uh, in the meantime, we saw that the economic conditions in India have been slowing down. Uh, the economy cooled down over the past two years, and primarily we, we saw a major uh, deceleration in the investment growth as well as uh, private consumption. And even after the elections, when we saw a business and consumer sentiment picking up and the overall uh, expectations of growth uh, improving, we haven't really seen much uh, going on in terms of um, improvements in the investment or, for that matter, in the production side. Peter, so, you so had some Yep. So, Hannah, well, one of the, the areas where the RBI has been particularly successful this year is in cutting inflation, getting inflation down. In fact, in the last monthly number, it was down to, um, down to zero. Does the RBI have maybe the same concerns that some of the other central banks have, that there may be possibly even a risk of deflation, or is India in a different situation from um, some of the other world economies? Uh, India certainly shares uh, some of the concerns uh, and some of the 
um, positions which other countries are facing right now, and clearly the oil prices are playing a big role here. However, India is in a slightly different position where uh, for a long time uh, inflation has been one of the major economic evils. And the Reserve Bank of India has been trying to bring structural inflation down. Uh, they shifted their target uh, from uh, the wholesale price inflation to consumer prices last year and set the target at 6%. And um, obviously, the oil prices have been favoring uh, the RBI's target to bring inflation down. However, as you already said, even though inflation has been coming down quite substantially in the past few months, um, the central bank has been quite wary in terms of uh, rushing uh, to cut interest rates because uh, they wanted to make sure that um, the inflation deceleration is being sustained. Thank in you, Hannah. RBI- uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. It's interesting stuff, though. Uh, that's Hannah Luchnikava. She is an economist with IH. S Global, and she joins us from New York. Thank you so much uh, for joining us on Money for Nothing. Shares of uh, electric car maker Tesla Motors have been under pressure of late. Last week, they fell 5.7% in a single session after Chief Executive Officer Elon Musk said that the company's sales in China were cooling. And among concerns, buyers are wary about a lack of charging infrastructure. So we're joined by Nat Bullard, who is a new energy finance analyst at Bloomberg. Good morning, Nat. Good morning. So, Nat, what are the challenges uh, for electric vehicles in China? You know, in China, you've got sort of fundamental chicken and egg problem here. If you don't have the cars, there's no reason to build charging infrastructure. If you don't have charging infrastructure, no one will buy the cars. But if you want to get a little bit less abstract, I think it's a breakdown within the instruments of the state that actually do the building. So state grid is the main institution that would be building any of the charging infrastructure that is public, so that is put around in in malls or in anything that's a public infrastructure. It has traditionally been building very, very large pieces of kit, not small things. And it's actually having a little bit of trouble distributing its own thinking and therefore distributing the infrastructure. So that's the public side. On the private side, though... It's that many, many people in China, even quite wealthy people, don't live in standalone dwellings. And so you've got to go, per that ad we heard just recently about the building ordinance, to your building code in order to find a place to go ahead and build charging within your apartments. And there are many people who simply don't want to do that. So, Nat, so Nat is the falling oil price um, making electric cars less attractive in the sense that, you know, as the oil price falls, the fuel prices fall, people are less um, incentivized to go and make the switch? Paul, it's a good question. And the way that I always have to answer it in the case of Tesla is <clears throat> if you're spending this much money in a car, you don't care what the price of oil is. Right? You're buying a luxury good uh, and you're buying a product that is something aspirational more than it is a vehicle that you need to get around town. I think in the long run where it puts pressure is on the cheap end of of electric vehicles. So on not this current Tesla, but the one that people will be buying five years from now. So if the oil price is still what it is, you may find somebody doing the actual economics of this versus that. But at the moment, I don't see it as actually a major driver. So this uh, chicken and egg situation that you mentioned, I mean, wasn't that the problem uh, with electric vehicles when they began in the U.S. and elsewhere as well? Um, You know, you have the cars, but where's the charging infrastructure? That's absolutely right. So in the United States, the solution was partly municipal. So a lot of cities would say we will be building these within our own city infrastructure. We'll be mandating it within public spaces such as shopping malls. Uh, Tesla also took on the large-scale public side of it, so the fast-charging stations on the highway, by simply building them on their own. 
And then you have many homeowners who realize that they can obviously build a charging station in their own garage. And also, a lot of sort of decision-making around this notion of range anxiety came into play, which is they realized, if I can drive 300 miles on one charge and I'm only driving 30 miles a day, I don't really need to be that worried. So what of this model, any points of it, could possibly be replicated in China? Is that, you know, any of it realistic? Uh, Well, we're seeing sort of green shoots. So the first is that Tesla is attempting to build some of its own charging network. Uh, I think, though, that the biggest challenge will be getting the grid company itself to buy in on this. And then there, there does become a bit of a virtuous cycle. So as people see that there is solid enough performance for the car uh, and that there is a slightly enough charging infrastructure to keep them going, then you create more demand for the vehicle and therefore people build more. One of the things that was interesting that uh, various U.S. municipals uh, looked into was um, you know, the idea of uh, saving money um, you know, if if you uh, did install, in fact, you know, charging infrastructure in your own garage, as you've mentioned, mm-hmm. and if if you saved and put uh, back into the grid, then you could get you know somewhat of a cut. Um, is anything like that at all uh, possible in China? Not at the moment. I mean, the the state grid that controls uh, all of the physical infrastructure also controls all of the retail and billing. Um, I don't think that that's yet been a big part of it. You've also got to have a situation where there's enough sort of dynamic reason within within the pricing structure and within the electricity market itself to take that power. So the way that that works best would be in a situation where it's extremely hot, sunny days, and on that day when you need a lot of air conditioning, you get paid to plug your car back in. And, and in the case of Tesla, it's burning through its its cash quite quickly. Is it going to be able, in, in order to build this business in China and, and meet the challenges there, is it going to have to do some more financing? Or, you know, what, what's the state of the, the balance sheet of Tesla, do you think? You know, I can't speak specifically to the balance sheet. I know that last year, at least, it didn't have any trouble raising extra capital, right, with a, with a secondary offering and then again with some some activity in, in the debt market. So that doesn't seem to be the huge issue uh, with building Tesla's own infrastructure, I think. It, again, it's going to come back to the state grid and also how well the the homeowners associations of the world essentially are able to play along and start building that own distributed cell phone infrastructure within buildings. All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Nat Bullard. He's a new energy finance analyst at Bloomberg. Well, fashion designers are being encouraged to adopt an environmentally responsible approach. The EcoChick Design Award presented yesterday as part of Hong Kong Fashion Week was an open challenge designed to encourage a more green approach. The award was created by Christina Dean, founder of Redress. She is also a trained dentist and journalist who set up the award as a way to start changing the global industry. Uh, let's welcome her uh, now onto Money for Nothing. Good morning, Christina. Good morning. Hello. So, Christina, can you tell us uh, why you started the award? Well, I set up Redress in 2007 um, as a result of moving to Hong Kong, working as a journalist and discovering so much about uh, China and Asia's environmental impact that was caused by the fashion industry. And as a result, Redress um, was established to reduce waste in the fashion industry. More specifically, we then moved on to launch the EcoChic Design Award. And as mentioned, that is a sustainable design competition for young designers. And the reason for, I guess, approaching and targeting young designers um, is because... 
There are some studies that suggest that designers can influence 80 to 90 percent of the environmental and economic costs of a product. And what we were finding is that young designers in Hong Kong and, and also around the world, actually, are not getting enough education um, about sustainable design. So we basically created a really fun, media-friendly, gorgeous, high-impact, like celebrity-fueled, everyone loves the competition, to bring sustainable design right into fashion weeks, right into the runway, um, and to really drive our education, actually, um, into the heart of the designer. And what, and what do fashion designers actually have to do, in your mind, in order to become environmentally friendly? What, what sort of things do they have to change or do differently? Well, that's a good question. I mean, there's many different ways that designers can be more sustainable. Um, you could take a broad approach. You know, you could look at um, the way that they source, the way that they use their uh, labour and their social issues. Um, from our perspective, we, um, we only really work, work on waste reduction. So um, with our designers, we're trying to approach um, the issue by really really drilling home textile waste reduction. So, for example, in our competition, they have to um, use sustainable design techniques such as zero waste. So when they make the pattern, they cannot create any waste. Upcycling, which means basically they have to get textile waste um, from a variety of sources. It could be factory rolls, it could be cut and sew waste, it could be um, curtains. Um, and then another design technique that they use is reconstruction, which is actually using finished garment waste to recreate it into new. So, Christina, why have you uh, focused more on the waste management aspect of this rather than, say, things like using uh, eco-fabric or recycled materials or, uh, you know, other things that, you know, we hear that the fashion industry elsewhere um, is proactively focusing on? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I mean, in the early days, we did promote sustainability in general in the fashion industry. Um, and I had a, quite a big turning point in uh, 2009. We did a huge, huge project with the United Nations to look at sustainability in its broadest sense. Um, and having done this amazing project, um, I just actually felt I didn't know what the right thing to do was anymore because sustainability is very complex. Like, should you go for organ organic cotton from China or from Peru, uh, if you're shipping it around the world, what is the right thing to do? It's so complex. So as a result of that... Um, I had a bit of a sort of a, a breakdown in not knowing what the right thing to do was. So we approached waste reduction because it is so obvious. Waste reduction is good. And not only that, so moving from a state of confusion into a into real sort of um, definite decision um, – Waste reduction is big here. We need to reduce waste. Um, in China, we have 26 million tons of textile waste every year. So textile waste and waste in general for Asia and for China is a massive issue. And so that's why we focus on waste. Yeah, it's, a, it's certainly a challenge, you know, when you think about shipping, as you say, uh, you know, with the whole idea of trying to go local. But in Hong Kong, that seems to be uh, more of an impossibility. Difficult. Christina, very interesting stuff. Thank you so much for joining us. That is Christina Dean, and she is the founder of Redress. Let's take a quick look at the numbers before we close the show. The Nikkei is up 47 points to 17,326. Australia's ASX index is up half a percent to 5,393. And Seoul's Kospi is also up half a percent to 1,930. Brent crude oil currently at $49 and gold is at $1,291.30. So here we are wrapping up the show. Peter, parting thoughts 
about or uh, beyond well as, as, as you know and I've said many times on this program I'm not a big fan of QE um, I, and you only have to look at Japan to see the limitations of massive monetary stimulus and you only have to look now at world bond markets to see um, how much QE really distorts the price discovery process it can't be normal where you have so many bond yields now trading in negative territory and I think this is a very dangerous um, in, environment for the markets and we have on Sunday don't forget also the Greek elections which is going to be another um, flashpoint yeah another will they won't they should they stay or should they go alright Peter thank you so much for joining us that's Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting our regular Thursday co-host on Money for Nothing and this is Renita Malhotra Hora wrapping up the show a quick look at the weather forecast for today it'll be fine very dry during the day the temperature right now 16 degrees Celsius and relative humidity 54%. Now it's time for the news with Todd Harding. The French Prime Minister Manuel Valls has announced a range of new security measures following the shootings in Paris two weeks ago by Islamist gunmen that left 20 people dead, including the three killers. The Prime Minister said more than 1,300 people in France were suspected of involvement with jihadist groups and should be monitored. The BBC's Hugh Schofield has the details. There'll be 2,680 new posts created in the security services as well as the Justice, Defence and Finance Ministries. 425 million euros, nearly half a billion dollars, will be made available largely for new equipment with savings made elsewhere in the national budget. With France's current rules on phone taps dating back to before the internet, there'll be a new law to widen the scope for electronic eavesdropping, though with appropriate oversight. There'll also, for the first time, be a national register listing all people convicted or suspected of terrorist activities. A founding member of the German organization Patriotic Europeans Against the Islamization of the West has resigned as the group's leader. Lutz Bachmann